Or am I on? Oh, there we go. Good evening. Welcome back to Wednesday nights. For any of you that uh, made it out to the New Year's Eve service, unfortunately, uh, we were sick at my house, but thank you to those of you that did come out, and uh, a special thanks to Jared, who's actually sick tonight. He did a lot of work putting that together, and Kelly did a lot to MC. so very appreciative for those things, and I think uh, according to what we see on Facebook, a lot of people came out and had a good time, and uh, so for those of you that didn't participate that would like to, you've got an entire year now to be working on your lip sync dance routine. For those of you that did participate that are sad you did or were here and feel like uh, maybe you were harmed, you've got an entire year to get the image of John Bacon singing to a piece of cake out of your head or Mike Harrison doing some kind of uh, flop up here that he did like an epileptic fit on the stage. We don't know what that was, but you've got a year to get that out of your head. So anyway, this evening we are going to be back into the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in the 14th chapter uh, picking up where we left off, but before we do, since it's been some six weeks or so since we uh, were here on Wednesday nights and in the book of Mark, I just wanted to do a quick recap of where we have been. That uh, through the first 10 chapters of the book of Mark, really the key theme or word you take out of that is immediately, that the book moves along very quickly. But when we arrived to the 11th chapter, we saw things take a turn in terms of speed. That from chapter 11 through 15, really, it covers the Passion Week uh, of Jesus. So that time from his entry triumphantly into the city through his uh, death, burial, and resurrection are really covered in this next section. So it really slows down quite a bit in terms of speed. And if we look at chapters 11 and 12, we see uh, after Jesus enters triumphantly, we then see him in the temple courts and he's being questioned. He's being questioned there mainly by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And as well as him being questioned, you see him really with a large crowd of people gathered around him. Because at this time, with this Passover week, the population in the city of Jerusalem had swollen to some two and a half million people. So it's really grown significantly, and there are a lot of people around that are listening to this interaction going on between Jesus and his questioners. And then moving on into uh, chapter 13, we see what is known as the Olivet Discourse, which is essentially the last formal teaching of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, which brought us up to uh, where we finished off last time in the first portion of chapter 14. And really, the uh, 14th chapter of the book of Mark, if you wanted to break it down into four different sections, what you would see is four different people or groups of people acting upon Jesus. Uh, This is the longest chapter in the book of Mark. So in this, if you broke this down, you'd first of all see the folks uh, that make up the Sanhedrin, the leadership of the Jewish religion, acting against or plotting against Jesus in order to put him on trial and do away with him. That was covered in verses 1 and 2 and then picks up again in 53 through 65. The next person you see acting upon Jesus is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And in verses 3 through 9, which we covered last time, we see Mary uh, anointing Jesus. Uh, Not only anointing him as king, but also anointing him for his burial. Uh, Thirdly, we've got Judas betraying Jesus. And we see the prediction of that in verses 10 through 12. And then we see the fulfillment of that later on in the chapter in 43 through 51. And lastly, we see Peter denying Jesus, uh, which is going to be 
uh, prophesied about or predicted in verses 26 through 31, which we'll cover tonight, and then fulfilled in verses 66 through 72. So this kind of gives you an outline or a breakdown of this 14th chapter of the main uh, characters and who is acting upon Jesus. But what's important to take away from last time as we move through is that in spite of the efforts of the leaders in verses 1 and 2, we saw the leaders of this Sanhedrin, they really did not want to crucify Jesus during this week because of the crowds we just talked about and because they, Jesus was very popular with the crowds. He was, because he was always railing against these leaders, they loved it, right? Anytime somebody's you know, railing on a leader, we're all, we're all in, and they were very much like this. So they didn't want the crowds to be there for fear that they might riot. But as we see with God's plans, the plans of men really don't have much to do with uh, it when it comes to going head-to-head with God. So we see that Jesus is going to fulfill what is laid out in Exodus chapter 12, and he is going to be the Passover lamb. So with that being said, with our introduction, let's move on into the first section tonight. All right, in this first section, I've entitled A Supper of Symbolism. So if you make your way to Mark 14, we're going to pick up in verse 22 as the Lord's Supper is going to be instituted, and we'll read through 25. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when they had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So this is a familiar passage to most of us. This is the Lord's Supper being instituted. And what, uh, at first, you know, as I read through this, uh, to be honest, I didn't get a whole lot out of it because uh, growing up in, in denominational Christianity, I've taken the Lord's Supper a lot of times. I've, I've been around where the bread's been broken and the grape juice is passed out. And it's one of those things that, that almost becomes routine. Um, and I know that it's a time for me to reflect and think about how bad I am, which doesn't take me long. It's pretty quick and easy for me to think about how many ways I've screwed up. And, and then this is a time for me to ponder how I can be better, right? But what I want to do is I really want to set the stage for what does the Jewish Passover look like? What is this, this time where Jesus is, is spending this meal with these men? If he's taking the time to break bread and actually lay this out, what does this look like in the Jewish tradition? And what I found is really quite uh, surprising, at least it was to me. So first of all, this bread that Jesus is breaking, the name of the bread is called matzah. And what matzah is, is an unleavened, so leaven is a picture of sin throughout the Bible, so this bread is without leaven, it's a flat bread. And what they would do, uh, traditionally, if we were having our, if we were all Jewish, everybody in here is now Jewish for the next 30 minutes or so, um, what we would do is we would sit around and we would break this matzah into three pieces. And then the centerpiece, you would take and they wrap it in a cloth, and then they hide it or put it away for later. All right? And this centerpiece is called, I'll try not to butcher this too bad, the afikomen, which is Greek for the coming one. All right? So this this bread piece is hidden away until the end of the dinner where it's then brought out, this coming one is then brought out and shared as this final morsel. So this is the piece of bread that Jesus is breaking 
in sharing with these men. Now, I think you can start to draw some parallels in your mind, right? That this piece of bread, which is unified and all together, is broken up into three pieces. There's some significance to that number as we think about the Trinity. And this one piece is taken away from the other two, and it's wrapped up, and it's put away. And in some Jewish families, it was not only just put away, but the kids would even make a game out of it, and they try to find, like, elf on a shelf, where's this thing at in the house, right? So they would go about searching. They would seek to try to find the coming one until they found it, and then they would bring it back, and they would share in this together. So you'd see a larger significance now as we start to put the pieces of the puzzle and this symbolism together of what this truly means. The next piece I want to point out is that at our traditional Jewish dinner, we've got something on the table called a zeroah. And what the zeroah was, it was the shank bone or that bone from the shoulder down on the lamb. And this is roasted and laid out on the table but not broken. It's only removed from the joint and laid out. So even if you weren't of the Orthodox uh, Jewish faith or sect, and you don't like lamb for your Passover dinner, maybe you've made chicken instead, that at every Jewish table they would still go ahead and roast this zeroa, this shank bone, and lay it off to the side. And this would be on the table for our Jewish dinner. Now what's the significance of this? Right, That in Exodus chapter 12, 46, we're told there that the Passover lamb was to have no bones broken, that the bones are just to be pulled away, not broken. So here's this unbroken Zeroah. If you would turn with me back to Isaiah 53, which is a, a passage that speaks of the Messiah, but I want to read verse 1 for you. So Isaiah 53, verse 1, and what it says here is that who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, what's interesting about this passage is the arm, if you went back to the Hebrew, is the word Zeroah. So what it's saying here, if I reread this, is who has believed our report, and to whom has the Zeroah of the Lord been revealed? So right here, laid out on our Jewish Passover table, is this arm of the Lord, this Zeroah. And who has this been revealed to, right? This is something that's been hidden, this meaning, to folks that don't believe in Jesus. So all these symbols laid out on the table. And then we look at Psalm 22, if we flip just a little bit back, but keep your finger on Isaiah 53, that in Psalm 22, verse 14, as David is, through the, the uh, Holy Spirit, is really giving this messianic psalm, in verse 14 he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. So all the Messiah's bones are out of joint. So here's this bone being taken out of joint, laid out here on the table, unbroken. And while the bread is broken per se, uh, as Jesus breaks this apart, uh, though no bones were broken, if you look at Isaiah 53, and you kept your finger in there, we see that in verse 5, but... He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. So we see this bread or his body being broken open by the stripes that were laid across his back. So you start to get this sense, and these images begin to come to our mind of what these different pieces really mean as Jesus is breaking this apart and making this new covenant with these people. So then if we move on past that and we go back to 
uh, chapter 14. If the bread has such significance, and even the bones or the bone of the lamb has such significance, what then are these cups? So if we look at, at uh, verse 23, and we see, and then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Well, the cup that they drank from was, in fact, not a cup. It was four cups. And each cup, filled with wine to signify blood, had a different meaning. The first cup, called Kadush, which you would drink at the beginning of your meal, was for sanctification. And the word sanctify meaning to set apart. So the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, were to be set apart from everyone else, from all the surrounding nations. They were to be set aside, to be to be shown that God and in, in, in all his power and all his might so that it would actually draw other people to the Lord, right? So this first, this cup called Kadush is for sanctification. The second cup is the cup of plagues or the cup of wrath would be passed around while they were eating. And this cup was to signify the plagues that they had, uh, had been performed by God uh, in Egypt so that Pharaoh would let the people go, let Israel leave and depart. So then thirdly was the cup of redemption. And this would be a cup that as you're wrapping up dinner would be passed around. All right? And then fourth and the final cup is the cup of praise at the end of the meal. When everything's all wrapped up, we've got the cup of praise. What's interesting about this is the cup that Jesus would have stopped at would have been this third cup, the cup of redemption. So now as we think about that and we reread, and he says, and set in verse 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And if we were to look at Matthew's account, in a parallel account in Matthew 26, 28, it would add for the remission of sins. So now you begin to understand that as he's taking and drinking of this cup, this third cup of redemption, this is for the remission of sin, right? So... The significance of blood and the significance uh, of this cup of redemption, if we wanted to further this discussion just a little bit, let's flip back to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verse uh, 18 through 22. So in Hebrews 9, verse 18 through 22, we see, And therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled the blood, both he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So the importance of this cup of redemption is that without it, without the blood of Jesus, there is no remission of sins. Now this seems kind of bloody and gross, and why do we have all this? And to just uh, end this flipping through, I want to bring you back to Leviticus chapter 17 and look at verse 11, because I do think this sums this all up to the importance that blood plays. In Leviticus 17.11, Moses writes here that for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. 
So let me just go back through that. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Your very life, what makes you up, is actually in your blood. If you want to get technical about it, your DNA is in your blood. What makes you, you, is in your blood. What also makes you faulty is in your blood. The good that makes you good, the bad that makes you bad, it's all right there, right in our bloodstream. And what we need in what this covenant and what Jesus is trying to explain to us is what we need is a glorious blood transfusion. Because the fact of the matter is we don't have a nurture problem. As Mike has said time and time again, we have a nature problem. The reason I have a sin issue is because I have this DNA in my bloodstream. This is what has infected me, right? And this is, the, this is the reason that blood plays such a significant role in why we needed this new covenant. Because there was no way for us to do, to do enough with our own physical works through the law. What it proved is we could not do enough on our own to get this blood transfusion. Because the problem is really in here, right? And in Jeremiah 31, 31, this is really a fulfillment of that, of what some 700 years earlier... Uh, he wrote, is it in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that's really what we're seeing here, that behold, the days have come where I will make a new covenant. Because the old covenant just would not cut it. So as we look at the supper, the Lord's Supper, which is really... Uh, at least for me, for a long time, was easy to just gloss over, not, not intentionally, just because I didn't understand it. I wanted to point out just all these significances. And, and lastly, to point out that the cup that Jesus did not drink was the fourth cup, the cup of praise. So what he says is, I am not going to drink of this cup until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. All right, Until everything is made new, I'm going to hold off on that piece. And the, and the other point here is that unless he drank the cup of wrath, we could not have the cup of redemption. He could not move on. So as we uh, wrap up then our big Jewish festival, all right, you guys are all doing a really great job uh, being a good Jewish family. You're way too quiet to be a good Jewish family, but thank you. We're going to move on into verse 26, and we're going to see how they would uh, complete their evening. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So in verse 26, they sang a hymn. And what they actually sang was a series of hymns or psalms, as we might know them, called the Hallel Psalms. And Hallel would be the same word that we get our word hallelujah from. So these are songs to praise the Lord. Now in Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 were songs that they would traditionally sing at the beginning of dinner to sort of commemorate things or to exhort people to praise the Lord as they think about all the mercies and the things that uh, he has done in their life. But then at the end of dinner, they would sing or recite Psalms 115 through 118 and then also Psalm 136. And what I wanted to point out here is that as they were reciting these psalms, that many of these that they're reciting after dinner are actually messianic psalms. So here's Jesus all right, God in the flesh, and he's singing songs about himself, right? So if we looked at Psalm 118, and in particular, verse 22, uh, and I can flip back there because I'm cheating. I put my tabs in here. In Psalm 118, verse 22, what he says, 
there is the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So here is the chief cornerstone singing about uh, being rejected and being the chief uh, cornerstone. And this is also a spot where Peter will later on, as we look into the book of Acts, uh, as he's standing before the Sanhedrin, that he would go back to this section of Scripture, and this would really be the basis for his message that he would deliver before those men. As he declared, you've missed the chief cornerstone. This is a stone you rejected. This is the Messiah. And then Psalm 136 is one that uh, basically reiterates and retells the story of Israel's history as they're brought out of Egypt and also uh, creation. So it's praising the Lord for creation, but the theme of that is His mercy endures forever. So as we think about this, as Jesus is and, and His disciples are singing, His mercy endures forever, that when we see the rest of our story as this time plays out in Mark, over these next several weeks, we're going to see Jesus really personify mercy. He's going to become mercy. That at every turn, what he exudes, what, what it really comes out of his every pore is mercy in and of itself. So moving on then into verse 27, and we'll finish this, this section up. Then Jesus said to, to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me. This night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will tell you, I, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. They all joined in. Yep, we're with that guy. So after this, all this song goes about, Jesus lays a prophecy out from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And in fact, this prophecy would come true uh, that only John would actually remain through the very end, through the crucifixion. So it's interesting that even as the prophecy is being fulfilled, that Jesus still makes sure uh, a remnant remains that can record the acts and the events that would happen through the crucifixion. But if we uh, flip down and look at verse 29 with Peter's reaction to this, that when he says here that even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. What really Peter is doing is he's denying the Messiah and what he has come to do. He's de denying the fact that he came to be not just a king, but before that the suffering servant. And really, he's denying his own weakness, right? That, that Peter's strength, as he looks, he's trying to find strength in himself. And I have no doubt that Peter loved the Lord. Like he did. They were friends. They were beyond even friends. They were brothers. Like, he loved him with all that he could muster up. He wanted to do right. Like, he didn't want to fail. And he was so sure of himself, but his issue was his confidence was in himself, and I think part of the reason that Jesus is predicting the failure that Jesus is, or that Peter's about to have is so that it would soften the blow a little bit when it actually occurred. And really what Jesus is saying is, you might be surprised in your actions, but I'm not going to be surprised. Right? The only person here that's surprised is you. And I, I think that's true a lot of times uh, for us, at least for me, you know, coming through this holiday season, uh, you know, we have had uh, quite the run. We've had a lot of family. We've done a lot of visiting. And I'm sure I'm not, we're not the only 
family that has to travel around spot to spot, but we've got some particular family members that, frankly, they're just hard to deal with. And, you know, been really trying to truly walk with the Lord for these last couple of years, I felt like when it came to dealing with certain ones that I have really grown in my faith. Like, I, I'm going to be able to, because of my growth, I'm going to handle these situations so much better. Like, I, I've got this nailed now. Like, I'm going to be the picture of, of uh, you know, humility. I'm going to be graceful. I'm going to have all the right words to say. And sure enough, you know, with one particular instance where I, I needed this the most, when it came down to it, when it, when it really, when everything all came together, not even 24 hours in, not only had I failed, but I was trying to strangle somebody! I was going to grab up! Going all Sam Kinison on it, right? Like, that was it! I've had enough! Not only had I failed, I failed miserably. Maybe not out loud, not verbally. You could surely see it on my face. And internally was a burning inferno. I mean, I was going to take a flamethrower to everything. And, and what came out of that was extreme disappointment, frankly, in myself. Like, I, I beat myself up for days. So I'm like, Lord, I thought I'd grown so much. I thought I was doing so much better. I... I, I, boy, I said I a lot as I prayed through this thing, you know, and, and trying to really reflect on what happened, and, and really where I found, what I found is I put my faith in me a whole lot more than what I put my faith in Jesus, that my trust was really a lot in how much I had grown as opposed to what he was doing in my life. So what I also want to point out, though, again, is that while I was surprised at my actions or my poor reaction, God wasn't. That at no point in time has God ever set up in heaven, looking down upon the events that he sees occurring, and does he ever say to himself, Oh, myself. O-M-S. That's as good as it's going to get, folks. You can either laugh at it or not, but I don't have a better, I don't have a better joke. Oh, myself. I'm going to say it again. He never says that. See, God is never surprised. He's never shocked. He knows exactly what point we're at. He knows exactly how far along we are. So while you might be surprised at your lack of growth, he is not. But what I do know is he is faithful. He will see us through this thing, and he will continue to grow us step by step from glory to glory, right? So... As we move on, Peter's surprised at his actions, but God is not. Now, lastly, as we, as we move then out of this uh, feast time, we sung our Hallel hymns, and now Jesus takes all the disciples, minus Judas at this point, he's departed, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we pick back up in verse 32. And then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. 
Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So to begin with in this passage, we see Jesus leave eight of the disciples outside the garden or at the edge of the garden, and then he takes these three that are really have been consistently the three closest to him up into the garden, and he asks of them, this is Peter, James, and John, and he asks them to sit and watch. Now, why would he do this? He didn't ask them to do anything other than to sit and watch. And at least for me, the passage of Scripture that really came to mind as I thought about this is that in Job, uh, in the second chapter, verses 11 through 13, this is really the highlight uh, for his friends, his frenemies, if you want to call them that, in the book of Job, when they come to him after all the all his family is completely taken away, all his wealth is taken away, and what they do is this. They sit and they mourn. They don't say a word. They just sit and they are companions to him. And that a lot of times when we've got people that, that are going through great times of distress and mourning, that a lot of what they need is just companionship. And I think that's really what Jesus is trying to point out, that even Jesus wants these guys just to be there with him just through this pain, as he's trying to deal with everything he knows he's going to have to face, even though they've denied it and they don't understand it, that they are just there really essentially to mourn with him, to, to be comforters with him. So I wanted to point that out. And then uh, when Jesus says, let this cup pass, if we go back to what we looked at just previously with the slides before, this cup that uh, Jesus is asking God the Father to let pass. If we look back at Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, is the cup of wrath. For he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. That's not a great cup. If you have to ask for a cup to be passed, pass that one, right? So what Jesus is really dreading, even more than de death, is this cup of wrath, that there's coming this time where he's going to have to take this. But he knows that he cannot share the cup of redemption unless he uh, drinks and takes of the cup of wrath. So he did that for me, right? did that for you. So then in verse 36, we see as Jesus cries out in Mark 14 uh, in his prayer, he says, Abba, Father, he cries out, Papa, Daddy. That's really his cry. He doesn't say uh, Adonai. He doesn't say Elohim. He says, Dad. And over the uh, Thanksgiving break, we had a really awesome opportunity to go uh, up to Minnesota. Angela's cousin was having uh, his, uh, her cousin's son was having his bar mitzvah. So for the first time, we were able to really get an experience uh, a Shabbat service, and also a bar mitzvah. Really cool. But one thing that I noticed or that I took from that 
is they had a lot of reverence for God, but never any mention of Abba. A lot of, a lot of singing to Baruch Adonai, blessed Lord, right? They recognized God as Lord. They would, they would sing to Elohim, but never to Abba. And that's really where, as Christians, we have this special connection because we understand that while he is Adonai and he is Elohim, he is also Abba. He is also Father. And that's what Jesus cries out. As he's saying, Lord, nevertheless, what, not what I will, but what you will. And what a prayer, right? If we're going to have a prayer in our life, as we're going through stuff, as we're, as we're really being pushed and we're being... Uh, you know, put into pressure-packed situations. That's really the focus where that needs to be. They're not my will, but thy will. So Jesus is here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if we looked at the word Gethsemane, what it literally means is olive press. So it's a vineyard, but a vineyard of olives. So it's or an olive orchard, maybe, is the right way to put it. And it's this beautiful, uh, really this beautiful setting. We are able to go and visit it when we were in Israel this past year. But Jesus, if you wanted to look at the comparison, and this is something that Mike brought out in a message when he covered Matthew some five years ago, uh, but what really, what we could look at is the comparison between Jesus being pressed and what takes place with olives. So I want to look at this next slide. So right here on the left, uh, on the screen, I think it's your left, you see an olive where the olives are actually mashed where the, where the uh, mashing would actually take place. So this large wheel or this millstone, the olives would be placed there, and then a donkey would be tied to this post and would walk around, and the olives would actually be mashed into uh, just this, this mush of, of uh, leftover olives, and they would put it into a bucket, and then it would be taken over, and a series of weights of three different weights then are applied to the olives. And as each different weight is applied, more oil is squeezed out of it, all right? And you see Mike Mingy back there in his Captain America shirt. So, and this is one of the cool things. If you haven't uh, made a decision or, or you're, you're still praying through going to Israel, this is, again, one of those places where the, the scripture itself really comes to life. You really get to see this. This is in Nazareth Village. But as each different weight is applied, a different quality or a different type of oil is squeezed out or extracted. And the first is really used for uh, the church itself or for the tabernacle services. The second weight being applied squeezes out more oil, and that's the oil that they would traditionally use to cook with. That's your olive oil. The third and final weight, as it's pressed down, was then used for uh, heating purposes, right? It was the lowest grade and the most common. But then lastly, even after all this pressing down, time, these three different pressings, then all the pulp was, could be gathered up and could be thrown on the fire and could be used even then. So even this last little bit, these last remnants, when it looks like nothing's left and all the good is squeezed out, it could even be used on the fire. So if we think about this and we think about Jesus, who is being pressed so hard spiritually that at Luke 22.44 even says, great drops of blood are pouring out of him, that he is being pressed time and time again as he goes back and prays, that each time a little bit more is, is pressed out. And we think about situations that we're in, 
And each time it feels like, Lord, I can't take any more. Like I feel like it's all down upon me. And then just a little more. And just a little more gets squeezed out. But each time, whatever gets pressed out of us, do you understand that in God's economy, nothing is wasted? Even the last little bits, he's going to use it, right? That character is being built up within us, that we come out of it even stronger at the end of the day. And then uh, if we look back at verse 38, we see Jesus as he comes back to these guys that are sleeping. And in Luke's account, it actually says they slept out of sorrow. These guys may get a bum rap because they're, they've fallen asleep, but they've actually fallen asleep because they're so sorrowful. They've never seen Jesus in this condition. They've never seen him in this shape where he's actually sweating out droplets of blood. So they slept because they, they frankly didn't know what else to do. And in this account, it says they did not know what to answer him. Like, we don't know what else to do. We're just here. We're seeing what you're going through, but we don't understand. But what Jesus tells them is, you sh- that, is that they should watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. That do we realize that prayer is not just for us to ask for things, that prayer is so often for our own protection. That I've heard it said before that, that uh, well, I don't know why I need to pray about it. God's will is going to be done anyway. Well, based on what I read, uh, prayer can be used very much for protection. So I don't know about you. I'm going to pray for the thing, just in case. You don't have to. You roll the dice. You take the chance. I'm going to ask for a little bit of protection. So that's really what Jesus is trying to explain to them. And what he says is the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. That our flesh, and probably the most impactful thing we see in Jesus's ministry is that he was, he allowed his flesh to rule, or his spirit to rule instead of the flesh. That he could go 40 days without eating. I can't go four hours without eating something. But he can go 40 days. Why? Because that's the limit that your body can go before it starts to shut down. I googled it, folks. It's got to be true. But that's it. That right at that 40-day mark is the limit that you can go before you start having permanent physical damage. But we can't, we can't get there. Why? Because our flesh is weak. But our spirit is the thing that, that is willing. And that's really what Jesus is dominated by throughout his ministry. And the reason that these things, uh, while they may not be easy to take, there's this greater understanding, right? So as we look at, the, as we look at all this, this different symbolism and we try to pull it all together, we see uh, the fact that Jesus is not surprised when we fail, but he also gives us a prescription that we can follow, that we can succeed. That through prayer... And through understanding, that through uh, praying that the Spirit would be first in our lives instead of the flesh all the time, that this is the way that we're going to be protected. So, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, uh, just thank you so much for the new covenant. Thank you for your blood that was poured out for me. Thank you, Father, that you spared me from the cup of wrath and you instead offered the cup of redemption. I praise you, Father, for that, because without that, without that glorious blood transfusion, we are so very lost. And I thank you, Father, that you don't expect any more out of me than what I can possibly provide. That, Lord, while I may have these great 
ideas of grandeur about what I can do, that you see me for what I am, and you still love me. You love me anyway. So I praise you for that, Father, and I pray that as we uh, make our, our way through the backside of this holiday season and we're on the, this verge of the new year with 2018 before us, that this would be a time that we would commit this year to prayer for supplication, sure, to ask for things, to thank you and to praise you, yes, but also for protection. And I have to pray for that for our church as we grow, that you would protect us, Father, as much from ourselves as anything else. So we lift all this up in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.